Good morning. Uh, so I have a little bit of a confession to make, um, and not so much a confession because it's not something that I'm, I'm really ashamed of, um, but maybe a little bit embarrassed about. So maybe I just need to be honest here for a moment. Um, I'm going to be 27 this week, and I am still obsessed with Harry Potter. <laughs> and that was not a joke. Uh, I love Harry Potter. And in my defense, those books, they came out when I was like uh, in elementary school. And so it's just sort of this love that, that stuck with me all the way through, through middle and into high school until uh, it was actually after my senior year in high school that I waited in line at Mall of America uh, for the seventh book. Um, now, one of the things uh, that I, I actually loved about Harry Potter is, is when they started making the movies. So I had read these, these books and interacted with these characters, and then I got to see them on the big screen. And I was so excited for this. And, and one of the things that I noticed is, is the way that I would interact with the story when I would watch the movie was very different than when I would read the book. Now, I'm sure there's a lot of theories about, uh, about uh, literary, literary uh, interaction versus uh, cinematic interaction. But the big reason that I think I interacted differently with these two different mediums, even though it's the same story, is when I watched the movie, I knew how it was going to end. Has anyone here, just a quick show of hands, have you ever read a book or seen a movie where you knew how the story was going to end? Anyone? Yeah, so, so a few hands. And so maybe it was like my interaction with Harry Potter, where you had read the book, and then you watched the movie. And because you had already read the book, you knew how the story was going to end. Or maybe it was because some rude person spoiled the ending. <laughs> so you watched this movie, or you read this book, and, and you already knew how it was going to end. Or, or maybe it was just something about the way that the story was told. It was just so glaringly apparent that here's where everything is going. Here's how it's all going to resolve. See, there's something about knowing the way that the story ends that shapes the way we interact with events in the present. And, and so if someone spoiled the ending for you, it might make the conflicts and the resolutions in the story seem a little bit anticlimactic. Now, on the other hand, it's maybe not always bad. Sometimes if you know how a story is going to end, it can shed light on, on different moments. It, it, it can help you see things that you wouldn't have seen before. My favorite example of this is, uh, is Life of Pi. Has anyone seen Life of Pi? or seen the, seen the movie, or I actually read the book first. Now, if you've either read the book or seen the movie, uh, you know that the ending radically reshapes the way you understand the story as a whole. I'm not going to spoil it for you today, but it's just this movie about this young man named Pai, who he's traveling uh, from India with his family, and his family owns a zoo. And, and he somehow, after this storm, he ends up in this lifeboat with zoo animals. And, and so the whole story is about his survival 
in this lifeboat with these different zoo animals and, and his interaction with these animals. But then when you get to the end of the story, there's this pretty major twist that radically reshapes how you understand all of these interactions. Knowing the end of the story reshapes how you understand the events of the story. And I don't think this is just true with books or, or movies or, or just fiction in general. I think it's actually kind of true in life. If you're encountering this circumstance that's causing tension and turmoil in you, if you know how it's going to all play out when it's all said and done, it makes that turmoil and that conflict a little bit more bearable. It maybe lowers the stress level just a little bit. You see, and that's precisely what we have going on in the book of Revelation. When John writes this book, he, he writes it to these Christians in Rome who are undergoing heavy, heavy persecution. And that persecution may have caused them to ask some questions about their faith. Can these promises really be true. And John is given this vision when he's exiled on the island of Patmos, and he writes it down. And this vision is essentially this pulling back the curtain of human history. Where John is able to look ahead and he's able to see the spiritual conflict. He's able to see the circumstances and the environment of human history from when Christ rises from the dead to when he returns on the last day. And so really this letter, it's written to these Christians so that they would know how the story ends. And knowing how it ends, that they would be different in the present. That they would have hope and peace and comfort in the face of conflict. And the same is true for us. We might not be undergoing this persecution like what was going on in Rome, but we read the words of Scripture. And they're given to us so that we would know how it all ends. So that we would have hope. So that we would remain faithful and steadfast in the face of the conflict that we face in this world. So that as we battle against sin and sometimes lose that battle, that we wouldn't lose heart because we know how it all ends. And time and time, time and time again, in the book of Revelation, John gives us this picture of what things are going to look like when that ending comes. That's exactly what we actually have in Revelation chapter 7, what we just read a moment ago. In the section from, from the Revelation of St. John, we look ahead to the final day, and John sees this enormous crowd of people and as I read these words again, I want you to note what these people are doing. Revelation 7, chapter or verse 9. John writes, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, 
blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. So John looks and he sees this enormous crowd of people. And he tells us that, that they're from every, every race, every nationality, every tribe, every language. But even though they're different in, in their backgrounds and where they came from, they're all united because they're wearing these white robes. But the other thing that, that unites them is what they're doing. That together with one voice, they're crying out in praise and worship of the salvation that has come through Jesus. They're proclaiming what God has done. They're proclaiming the victory of Jesus over sin and death. And as they do this, it's not just the people, this crowd that sings out. John tells us that the angels fall down in worship. And these four living creatures that are around the throne, they fall down in worship. And these elders, we're told there are 24 of them earlier, and they're there to represent the 12 apostles of the New Testament and the 12 tribes of Israel in the Old Testament, representing the entire people of God throughout the scriptures. And they too fall down in worship. Affirming the declaration of this crowd of people. John looks ahead and he sees this multitude and they're worshipful. But the last day is marked by worship. And as John looks at this, one of the elders leans over and asks him a question. He asks him this. Verse 13. One of the elders addressed me saying, Who are these? clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So John sees this vision, and one of the 24 elders, he asks him, Hey, do you know who these people are? John says, Well, well no, not really, but, but certainly you do. And this elder from the throne room, he tells them, he says, these are the people who have come out of the tribulation, this time of testing and waiting. The people who have been waiting and longing for this very day that John sees. The people waiting for Christ to return and raise the dead to live with him in his kingdom. These are that people. These are the ones who have washed their robes clean in the blood of the Lamb. That's a strange image, isn't it? But you see, this blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ, it's not blood that leaves a stain, but it's a blood that washes clean. A blood that makes our dirty, sinful rags white as snow. You know who John sees here? It's us. It's you. It's me. It's the entire people of God, the entire church, united in the praise of Jesus for what he has done. That's what John looks ahead and sees. 
Every single person who is called on the name of Jesus and by his cross and resurrection found forgiveness of sins and new life, that's what John looks ahead and sees. And their lives in that new creation is marked by worship. Now that's not to say that uh, the new creation and when we are raised from the dead that it's going to be eternal church. I wouldn't wish that on anyone. But what it is going to be is everything that we are and everything that we do is fueled by this worship of Jesus. That our work will be driven by worshiping Jesus. That our recreation will be driven in worship of Jesus and enjoyment of His goodness and His mercy. That when we sit together and we laugh together and we eat together, it's all going to be done in the worship of the risen Lord Jesus Christ and the gifts that He's given. That's the future that John points us to. That's the end that's in store for us. And as we look and see the life that He tells us they're enjoying, we get this glimpse into why it is that they're worshiping Him with everything that they do. John writes in verse 15, Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat, for the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And He will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. See, think of experiencing that. And it's no wonder why the people are worshiping and praising the name of Jesus. No more hunger, no more thirsting. Right? No more of the poverty that tears our world apart. They'll be shielded from the scorching heat. So, so this conflict that we experience with creation... Where, where, where man has this way of destroying creation, and, and in turn, creation has this way of destroying man, that will all be gone. And Christ will actually dwell in our midst to shepherd us and guide us. Right? The language here, it, it brings to mind those words of Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He'll make us lie down in green pastures. He'll lead us beside quiet waters. No more death. No more sickness. No more illness. Be reunited with those loved ones that that we've lost. That's the future that John points us to. That's the end of the story. And the response to it is very simply to fall down before the Lamb and worship Him. see, God gives this revelation to St. John to give to the church and to give to us because he wants us to know how the story ends. He wants us to know how the story ends so that we would be able to live differently right now. 
Now, maybe you're thinking, so what? How, how does the fact that in the new creation and on the resurrection of the dead that these people are worshiping, how does that shape the way that I'm living right now? And I think the answer to that question comes simply with this question. Why wait? Why wait until then? Why wait until that last day to worship Jesus with everything that we are? When we have already received the promises of new life and life eternal because we've received the gift of baptism. Why wait to worship Jesus with everything that we are when we get to gather and have our sins forgiven and our robes washed clean by the body and blood of Jesus every time we gather? Why why wait to worship Him when we have the promise, I will never leave you nor forsake you? Why wait? Right now, we get to do everything and have everything that we are oriented and fueled by this worship of Jesus. We don't need to go to our work as just sort of these mundane things that we do to pass the time away, put food on the table. No, our work can now be directed and aimed at service to Christ and and proclaiming His goodness and His mercy to us. Our recreation can be enjoyment of the good gift that creation is. As we sit together and laugh together and eat together, we get to declare those same words that the saints declare here. Salvation belongs to our God. (coughs) Salvation belongs to the Lamb who was slain for us. Why wait to declare that when we can declare that right now? Because right now, we experience that promise that we have received that salvation. Amen? Amen. Amen.